Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to week seven of Pillars. And uh, tonight is going to be a little different, nothing too weird, but uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. I was thinking of a way, how can we uh, take some of the concepts that may be a little foreign to you, a little different than how you're used to putting things together and maybe uh, rivet them in your mind a little bit. That'll often happen through conversation. So we'll give something a shot, maybe about 740 or so. We'll do that. Uh, don't, now, don't leave before 740. Uh, it, it'll actually be uh, fun. It'll be a good time. Amusing. Well, let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, we give you thanks for uh, just the change of seasons and for the fact that uh, it's spring. And even though it may not have felt like it today, we know that uh, spring is coming. And even feeling that like today with the temperature it is feeling so cold is a reminder that uh, warm weather is on the way. So Lord, help us to be grateful for the days you give. Uh, for the people that you give us to navigate life with. And so, Lord, as we gather tonight and continue to process some concepts that may be a little different, uh, Lord, give us um, minds that understand. And Lord, may they not just be concepts that we're trying to get into our minds. May you show us through your spirit how those same ideas need to take root in our hearts and bring about transformation in the way that you describe it in the scripture and in the way that you want the process of repentance to work. Lord, if there are things that are unclear, uh, I pray that you would uh, do what only you can do, and that's uh, bring clarity to the concepts. And Lord, as we begin to move toward the next two weeks and wrapping up the pillars, Lord, if there are questions, uh, I pray that you'd help people raise them and that you'd help us to be able to answer them together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And that reminds me, there's a table in the back uh, outside the center doors. It has a table on it, pens and some three or cards are not three by five, but there are cards. If you do have a question, uh, would you fill it out on the card? And it would be good if you'd put it in the little bucket and you can still do that next week and even the following week. But it's really difficult for especially people online uh, to hear the question. And sometimes it's even hard for me to hear. Uh, and so if you would fill out the card, that'll also give me a little time to think about what the questions are. But if you do have them from the floor, we can certainly take them two weeks from tonight. That'll be our last evening together. All right. Well, as we get started, let's remind ourselves of what our four pillars are. Uh, we started seven weeks ago tonight, not by looking at a pillar, but by looking at a definition. And we said that ministry or mission, even though we all kind of have an idea of what it means, is being used by God to influence people to move, or to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. And so the Spirit condescends to use us in that process. You know, I, I often think, and you may have heard me say before, you know, we are more liabilities to God than we, than we are assets. But God really does want to use us. And as we put our skills and our abilities, our time and energy, even our weaknesses into his hands, he has a way of taking those gifts, those abilities, those liabilities, and turning them into positive influences in other people's life. And then after we did um, the definition, we looked at our first pillar, and that is that Bible's a big story. And we, and we even went through K 
Calvary's um, example of the story, the six acts that we work with. And we talk about God creates, God is rejected, God promises, God appears, God sends, and God restores. There are the six acts to our story. Um, you can multiply the acts, you can kind of shrink the acts, but just remember, we read the Bible as a big story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's all connected. So you can't lift verses or a passage out of one place without recognizing something about the context you took it from and something about the context that you are living in. Those contexts are different. And so we ask two questions. What did it mean, right? What did it mean back then? And what does it mean? What it meant and what it means. Two different questions that are wrestling with the same thing, right? Meaning and application. You've got to know something about the story to do that. We then talked about that ministry, uh, that the Bible is Jesus' story, right? Everything's moving to Jesus, flowing from Jesus. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point's Jesus. Purpose is to lead us to him. And if you like big fancy words, that means we read the Bible Christotelically. Telos in Greek means goal. And so we read the scripture as the goal is always Jesus, even if it's pointing back to Jesus, the goal is to remind us of who he is and what he did and to call us to live in conformity and dependence upon him. Then we talked about absolutes, convictions, and preferences, and that goes under our heading of a prioritized theology. And you don't have to put the same things in the same ring or the same circle, but you do need to recognize that some things are more important than other things. Some hills are worth dying on, some hills are worth sacrificing on and letting other people get their interests met and their preferences rather than you. And in convictions, you live by them, but you dialogue with others and you sharpen your convictions as you're in dialogue, giving liberty to other people to live accordingly. And then we started last week talking about gospel transformation, and we said it's an internal to external move. So it's not outside in, and so we use the example of fruit on a tree. It's not tying fake fruit or artificial fruit onto your life. It's actually fruit that's produced by the root drinking in the gospel spring and then allowing that fruit to permeate our lives and produce leaves that give shade and fruit that gives life and nourishment to other people. So we're going to do a little bit, little bit of review. I'll give you two examples from the Bible of how this works and then I'll explain what we'll do after that. And next week, we've got a, a fairly big assignment, but we'll, I'll give you a little clue toward the end of what we're going to do next week. These are the passages that we looked at last week. We're not going to review them. Uh, just to say, we looked at Psalm 1. And if you remember, Psalm 1 gave us this principle that you see throughout the Bible. You know, sometimes a single passage will open your eyes to the reality that is everywhere else in the Bible, but you may not have seen it as clearly. Psalms one of the, Psalm 1 is one of those passages. Um, fruit is produced by the roots which are unseen. And the principle that we played with, what is unseen is producing what's seen. What is unseen is meditation. Roots, right? Trusting, allegiance, all of that kind of stuff under the soil, producing fruit and leaves that provide shade and nourishment to others. We then went to Luke 6 and we saw Jesus adapt Psalm 1. And so in Psalm 1, you have trees and chaff. Jesus talks about two trees. He said, What are good trees and bad trees? And he defines a good tree as one that produces good fruit, but the good fruit is produced because the tree has a good heart. 
right? Good root system. Bad roots produce bad fruit. Um, and then he shifts gears and says, roots are kind of like human hearts. So root now equals heart. And that idea is not your heart and it's not emotion and not your physical organ that's pumping blood. Heart in the Bible is your control center, right? Proverbs 3. Out of the, well, out of the heart comes the wellspring of life. All of life bubbles up from your heart. We then went to Ezekiel 14, and Ezekiel 14 uses the same heart language, but now we're going to pick up another biblical idea. We create idols in our hearts, and the idols that we fashion in our hearts soon become stumbling blocks before our faces. So you create idols in your hearts, and then those stumbling blocks are outside. So what's inside, heart stuff, creating an idol, produces something on the outside that causes you to stumble. We then went to Isaiah 40 and 44. Those passages talk about how do we deal with idols? You deal with idols by comparing them to God. So you have your focus, uh, you're living with idols kind of in your heart. You compare them, you bring into comparison and contrast what you're trusting, finding your allegiance in with who God is and what God has done. And in that comparison, the stupidity of idols and the temporal nature and the inability of idols become clearly seen. And in the presence of God, those idols begin to tarnish and it's easier to get rid of them. Jeremiah 17 uh, talks about we trust with our hearts. Remember the tree in the desert that, that always produces fruit and then the tumbleweed, right? The bush in the desert, a flourishing tree and a bush. The tree trusts in God. The bush trusts in human beings, trusts in man or something else. And that creates the big difference. And in Joel 2, talks about that we repent by don't just rip your garments, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. It's an inside deal that produces stuff on the outside. So we played with those passages a little bit, kind of worked through them. If you're still a little confused or you, or you weren't here last week, you can go back and watch that. That uh, video is on YouTube, it's on the website, uh, just to remind yourself of it. We then started to develop a model, and this is the model that we're gonna play with for, for the rest of tonight and next week. We'll make it a little fuller next week, but here's where, um, here, here's, where, here's where we started. We looked at fruit, or excuse me, we looked at world, and we said world is everything in a person's life or environment. So everything, right? Your spouse is in your world, your kids, this class, right? We're kind of together here. Your car's in your world, your job, your boss, all your pets, all that stuff, your bank account, your retirement, everything's in your world. Then we looked at fruit and we said, fruit is everything we produce. And we said, fruit comes in three primary varieties. Okay, fruit comes in the variety of thoughts, actions, and emotions, they're the three varieties of fruit that we produce. And so we feel, we think, we do. Those are things that we're, they're fruit that we are making. Uh, we then said heart sits underneath the fruit and you could kind of transpose a tree, like draw the Psalm 1 tree here, right? The tree exists in the world and it's producing fruit. Here's kind of the soil line. The roots are down here. But what the roots are drinking in is providing the fruit and the leaves up here. So we talked about environment, that would be world, fruit that's being produced, and the root structure is heart. Now, unlike fruit, you trust with your heart. You love with your heart. 
You prioritize with your heart. You value with your heart. You put price tags on things with your heart, right? So you prioritize life in your heart. This is more important than that. That is more important than this. That's heart stuff. Whatever you uh, or whatever, whatever you're allied with, whatever you're living for, that's heart stuff, where you find your identity. We did say that we live in a world that continually bombards us with this message. World produces fruit, right? Isn't that right? And we, you make me mad. Oh, you make, I'm so happy when I'm with you, right? No, no, technically that's not right. World does not make fruit. Heart produces fruit. It's what you're trusting. It's where you're finding your identity. That's what is producing your fruit. So let me give you a couple examples and then we're going to look at two uh, from the scripture and then I'm going to give you a little assignment. Uh, two examples that um, I, I think of often, none of them are brand new. I'm, I'm afraid to use one that, that's uh, kind of new. Uh, I'll, I'll make up one to start. Suppose there's um, a single mom and a single mom has uh, a junior high school daughter. And the single mom really has her act together. And yeah, life's hard and she's got a lot of hoops she has to jump, jump through. She's doing the work, you know, and trying to bring, bring her daughter up being, you know, daddy as much as he can, being mommy, provide for all the needs, take care of the house, go to work, all that stuff. Well, she really is doing a good job and she kind of prides herself in doing a really good job at work. She's being a really good mom. Her daughter is being raised, you know, more obedient than the other kids in class. Her daughter's getting all A's, never late for school, etc. Well, one morning, uh, she wakes up looks over at the clock and notices that she's overslept 45 minutes. Now that means that if her daughter didn't get up on her own, she's going to miss the bus. If she misses the bus, mom's going to have to drive the daughter to school. If the mom has to drive the daughter to school, then mom's going to be late for work. But every morning when mom gets in, she's usually the first one there and she makes coffee for everybody. Well, all that's going to be, so she goes in hoping that her daughter got up and left on her own. She opens her daughter's bedroom door and there's her daughter sound asleep in bed. At that moment, mom is frantic, right? Mom is ticked off. Mom's angry. She's angry at the daughter. She's angry. She was angry at life. So she kind of fusses and fumes and she hurries as much as she can and throws herself together, yells at her daughter. They jump in the car and she gets to work a half hour late. Everybody else is already there. And she says to everybody, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. And they're kind of joking. Well, you're always the first one here. What happened today? And she's kind of explaining, making excuses. Now, here's my question. Why was she so angry? Well, it's easy to say, well, she's angry because of stuff in her world. She's angry because she overslept. She's angry because her, her daughter didn't get up in time. She's angry because her daughter missed the bus. She's angry because she had to drive her daughter to school. She's angry because she was late for work. Why was she, if world doesn't produce fruit, why is she angry? Well, she was finding her identity in being a single mom that has her act together. She's the first one at work. These other people, they have spouses and they can do all that, but she's there first. She makes the coffee. 
She, she's the martyr, right? Who can, and when that image, that identity that she's been rooting her life in is beginning to be tarnished a little bit, she's angry because she's not living up to the woman she's been portraying and pretending to be. See how what she's loving and valuing can produce that? Personal example. Uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, on the Schuylkill Expressway. I was driving... Um, into Philadelphia. I was scheduled to have lunch at noon with Jim Boyce. So Jim and I would get together for lunch once in a while. Jim was at 10th Press. And uh, it is right now 5 of 12. I am sitting on the Schuylkill. It's a parking lot. I am near the City Line Avenue exit. And I'm not moving. And I am livid, right? It's a good thing I have a web. Talk about road rage. That was me, right? I mean, I was angry. I, I couldn't believe it. Now, why was I angry? Well, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to be late. I wanted to be on time. I hate sitting in traffic. You know, the idiots up here driving. Okay, why am I angry? Because I want Jim Boyce to respect me. And I want him to say, well, even though Charles comes all the way from the suburbs, he's always on time. I'm usually later than he is. He's waiting for me. Yeah, but all of a sudden, I'm going to be late, and I'm loving being on time, being respected for this, being with my, right? Why am I really angry? Not really because of the traffic, really because the image that I want to project and that I'm, the identity I'm trying to live up with, that is falling apart at the moment. See how that works? It's what's in our hearts that drive that behavior, words, actions, etc. It's not really what's in the world. Here's another way of saying it. What's in your world may provide the occasion, but what's in your heart produces the behavior, the words, and the emotion. There's the occasion in your world, but it's your heart that's giving energy to the whole process. Make sense? All right, so let's um, look at a couple of biblical examples, right? Biblical illustrations. I was half tempted to just bring a stool up and read through the book of Philippians. Uh, it's real short, four chapters, you read through it in, I don't know, 10 minutes. Um, we're, we're not going to do that. I would encourage you to do that sometime with, with the idea, let's go back, read through Philippians with this in mind, right? Use this as a transparency in a sense to lay over the book of Philippians. Okay, so Paul wrote the book of Philippians to the church in Philippi. Do any of you know uh, where Paul wrote Philippians from? He's in prison. All right, so, so think of what's in Paul's world. Think back, I, I know I'm Assuming you have read Philippians recently, and I did, so <laughs> I've got a little bit of advantage. Paul's in prison. He talks about the palace guard. You know, he's, he's being guarded. He's a prison. He's in chains. Oh, not just that. He was called to be an apostle and a church planter, and now he's on the bench. He should be out there planting churches, sharing the gospel, right? Interviewing people, discipling people. He's locked up in a prison. 
So his gifts aren't able to be deployed, right? And a mess in his world. Oh, not just that. There are people on the outside that are slandering him, accusing him of not really preaching the true and faithful gospel. And maybe, maybe they're saying, oh, that's why God took him off the stage. Right? He's kind of twisting. He's trimming the gospel a little bit. God had to get rid of him. Paul knows that he even says in the letter, they're preaching Christ from selfish motives. And he see, he's on the bench. He can't do anything about it. He can't reprove them. He can't hold them accountable. He's in prison. He also, um, in his world, he has a history. And the history, right, you can read this in chapter three. He's got a long list of doing a whole bunch of stuff that God required Jews to do. He says things like this. Yeah, I was like a Hebrew of Hebrews. I came from the right tribe. I was circumcised the eighth day. I jumped through all the right hoops. I was obeying the law and what God calls us to do better than all of my peers. I rose through the ranks. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So I was checking off all the, all the to-do items that God had me do, and now I'm in prison, chained to a guard. I understand Jesus is the Messiah now, so even get that one right, and now I'm put on the bench, I'm on the side. Oh, not only that, there's a pretty big argument in the church in Philippi. Two women are fighting. Their names in chapter four are Euodia and Syndike, and they're fighting. And Paul says, I, I can't come and tell them to stop it. I can't explain to them what they're doing is kind of um, causing the reputation of the gospel and the unity to be destroyed. Here, I, I, I can't do anything about it. So you recognize Paul's world is an absolute mess. Now, there are some good things. He talks about the example of Timothy, right? Timothy's kind of doing what he wants. He had come, and uh, Epaphroditus, so Epaphroditus comes and Epaphroditus comes to visit and he gets really, really sick. And they're even wondering if he's going to survive to go back to the church of Philippi. He may die. The church of Philippi sends a gift. That's a good, a financial gift. That, that, that's a good thing. You know, back then prisons were a little different. You, you didn't get like the best medical care and all that stuff taken care of. If, if family and friends didn't provide for you and you were in prison, you went without. They were, and so there's some good, mostly bad. So you get the idea, roughly, uh, you could read through the letter. You could fill in a lot more. I, I made a whole page of things in his world. You get the idea? It, it, it's not a positive world, right? Now, if, if, this is wrong, but if world produces fruit, what fruit would you expect Paul to be producing if world produced fruit? Lots of negative fruit, Right? He'd be angry, he'd be depressed, he'd be screaming and yelling. Um, maybe he'd be suicidal. He'd be trying to break out. He'd be yelling at the guards. He, all kinds of stuff. Huh. When you read through Philippians, you don't see any of that fruit at all. What is Philippians often called the letter of? How do you get joy from that world? You can't get there from here. Um. So here are just a few examples of fruit he's producing. He's writing a letter of joy back to the church in Philippi. There's not one word of complaint in the letter. 
Like, he's not writing a whining letter. Oh, woe is me, my life's a mess. You don't see any of that. He writes a letter of joy. He begins, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord. What? Grace and peace? He's encouraging. He even says things like this. Yeah, I know I'm kind of put on the bench and I'm in prison, but here's one thing. The whole palace guard has heard about the gospel of Jesus since I've been in here. This is great, right? I get a captive audience, eight-hour shifts. They come in, they're chained to me for eight hours. They can't leave. What do you think we're going to talk about for eight hours? Um, If I'm out on the street sharing the gospel, they can run away. Yeah, the guard can't run away. Eight hours, three times a day, right? Um, That's the kind of stuff Paul writes. He writes them a thank you letter. In chapter two, he talks about Jesus descending into greatness, that Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth, and continues to descend all the way from the incarnation to being mistreated, the crucifixion, and eventually the resurrection, and all will be glorified. Wow. The fruit is all positive. And he says words of encouragement, things like this. Um, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. You know, it's one thing to say that when you're lying on a beach somewhere and the room's all paid for and you have lots of money in the bank. It's another thing to say, I've learned to be content in all circumstances when you're in prison, chained to a guard, you're being slandered and you're not sure if you're gonna live that week or not. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. My God will supply all your needs, he writes in chapter four. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. What? I mean, that is like an amazing crop of fruit, isn't it? If world produces fruit, you can't get there from here. But if heart produces fruit, you can. Let me just read a few words from chapter one. And this will have some world fruit and heart in it. And I'll kind of end with a heart section. But you, know, you, you, you track along and you tell me what Paul's rooted in. Look at verse 12 of chapter one. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, right? Being in prison, put on the bench, all that, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains, that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely proposing that, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. There it is again, the theme. And I will continue to rejoice. For I knew that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound all the more because of me. Yeah, he's um, all about finding his identity in Jesus and the gospel. He's all about trusting Jesus regardless of his circumstances in his world. He's valuing his commitment to the gospel more than he's valuing possessions and freedom and retirement. You see, all those words that we talk about, trust, love, value, identity, all those heart words, man, they're gripping hard in Paul's life in Philippians to the gospel and to Jesus. In fact, that psalm, that song, in chapter two that talks about the descent, and that probably is a song from the first century, um, of Jesus, that is kind of the anchor that is the center of the entire letter. So you see how that works? All that good fruit, not produced by the nasty stuff in his world, produced by the fact, just like Psalm 1, by his life being rooted in the gospel, rooted in Jesus, and because of that, he can produce good fruit in the midst of a desert and a mess. Make sense? Let's look at a negative example. If you have your Bibles, turn back to uh, Joshua. We're going to start in 6, but we're mainly going to read 7. So Joshua chapter 6. I think we got this here. Here we go. We're going to start in Joshua 6, verses 17 through 19. Now, let me kind of walk you to where this passage is, right? So the first five books of the Bible, uh, they're called the Pentateuch. Pent means five, right? So they're five books. <laughs> and there are five books that most believe Moses authored. And those books take us from creation to the threshold of the promised land. So you got Genesis, right? You learn about all the, um, you know, the ancient um, Jews, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Exodus, that's Moses leading Israel out of Exodus. Uh, then you get to Leviticus, that's all kind of the, they're at Mount Sinai now. And God gives all the order of worship for them. Here's how you guys are to worship, that's Leviticus. It's called Leviticus because that's what the Levites were to do to worship. Here's how you do sacrifices. Here's how you have to keep, you know, the candles burning. You have to offer the ashes this way. It's all about worship. Numbers, uh, kind of a lousy name, but it's called Numbers because there's a census at the beginning and the end. But the idea, Numbers picks up kind of where Exodus leaves off and takes you all the way. The, the whole wilderness wandering 40 years, that's all Numbers, right? Which it doesn't make sense, Numbers, but, but it's all there. And so they wander for 40 years. It should have taken um, the nation about a month to go from Sinai to Canaan, about a month. Instead, it took 40 years because they had a better idea, right? And Numbers is all about that 40 years. Deuteronomy then, so in Deuteronomy, they're on the threshold. They're ready to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy, right, De means two. So Deuteronomy means second word, bad title again. <laughs> but that basically means um, God's second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is just composed of a series of messages, a series of speeches that Moses gives right before they enter the promise. Remember, Moses isn't allowed in. He gives these speeches saying, now when you get in the promised land, here's what you're to do. 
Trust in God, right? Love God, live out these principles. That, that's where we get the Shema, right? The Lord is one, the Lord, I love the Lord, you God with our hearts, soul, mind, strength. All that's Deuteronomy stuff. That, that's what you do to live there. Well, then Moses dies the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua picks up. Joshua now leads the nation across the Jordan, right? Just like they crossed the Red Sea coming out of Egypt, wandering in the desert 40 years. Now Joshua leads them across the Jordan River. God's kind of authenticating Joshua as the leader now. He does the same thing Moses did. They entered the promised land. And once they're in the promised land, the first city they attack and take is Jericho. So you walk around the cities, then walls fall down, all that kind of stuff. But God gave a pretty clear prohibition. And here's what he said. I think it's 17. Yeah, beginning in 17 of chapter six. Here's, here's what God said. 617. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, now that word devoted there is kind of a technical term, and that shows up in Deuteronomy and all the way through Joshua. What that means is, um, God's basically saying, you as a nation are not going to benefit from the destruction of these other nations. What, what those nations have, that stuff's devoted to God. It's all God's stuff, that's the point. God owns all that there is, and God gave the victory. So you don't divide up the plunder any way you want. It's God's stuff. He'll tell you how to divide it up. You take Jericho, it's all his stuff. All God's devoted to him. Got it? It's kind of the principle. Well, in chapter seven then, they defeat Jericho. Jericho, yeah, basically a fort, as far as we can tell. So it's pretty um, yeah, militarized, right? Probably not a whole lot of civilians or some like Rahab's there. Um, but it's basically, you know, a fort on right when you get in, into Canaan that's kind of protecting the area. And Israel doesn't have too much of a problem taking it at all. Walk around, walk around each day, last day, seven days, walls fall in, take it. No big deal. There's another town nearby. That town's called Ai, much smaller than Jericho. So um, they're feeling their victory now a little bit. So they come to Moses and say, uh, or excuse me, they come to Joshua and say, you know what? We don't need to send the whole army to Ai. We'll just send a few guys. Well, we got this thing. We got it. They go to Ai and get their butts whipped. In fact, 34 Israelites die. 34 wives lose a husband. Maybe 100 kids lose a dad. How many parents, 50, 60 parents, lose a son? Well, they come back and, boy, they're depressed and discouraged now. They, you know, bodies and they come back. What are they going to do? Well, Joshua begins to kind of, he's downcast. He's praying. Um, look at verse 10, though. 
There aren't many places in the Bible where God commands you not to pray. Here's one. So Joshua, what what should we do, God? What should we do? We can't believe we're defeated by it. Here's what he says. The Lord said to Joshua, verse 10, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Stop praying. What? What the heck happened? Well, remember the command, everything's devoted. That's not quite exactly what happened. There was one guy named Achan, and you can remember him because by the end of the story, he's Achan. (laughs) And Achan can't resist. So let's read the verses. So here's what happens. (laughs) Joshua says, um, okay, well, we have to find out who sinned. God said somebody sinned. We don't know who did it. So he has each of the tribal leaders come and the right tribe is chosen. Each of the family leaders come and eventually Achan is now selected. You, hear, you read this verse a couple times in the Bible. Your sin will find you out. Well, Achan's did. So Achan's chosen now. So here's what happens beginning of verse 19 of chapter 7. You read along. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from him. Joshua doesn't know what he did. He knows somebody sinned. He got selected. So, Joshua, tell me what you did. Now, here's what Achan said. Now, let me go back. Here's our little transparency. I put the transparency as I read. Now, here's what Achan said. Verse 20. It is true. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. He took them back to his tent, dug a little hole, put them in a hole. He took it. All right. Now, what's in Aiken's world when he walks into that apartment, that room, that house? What is in his world? Well, there's a robe and it's from Babylon. 200 shekels of silver. I mean, that's not chump change, right? And a gold bar weighing 50 shekels. Huh. Any problem so far? No problem at all, right? He's just noticing stuff, right? Um, what does Aiken do? What, what actions, thought, what, what does he do? Yell it out. He took it. He took it. Now, here's a big question. One of, one of you out. Why did he take it? He coveted it. You covet in your heart, you take with your hands. That's why the last of the Ten Commandments is the one that's, the first one, have no gods but God, the last one, and don't covet. That's internal stuff. It begins with heart, ends with heart, the Ten Commandments, right? You covet in your heart. You don't covet with your hand. You covet with your heart. Now, you look at that and you think, yeah, that kind of makes sense. 
That's also pretty stupid, isn't it? Um, let me ask you a couple questions. How did Achan know the robe was from Babylon? How do you th- we don't know. How do you think he knew? Back in those days, right, they didn't have hangers and closets, right? They didn't do that. In fact, because of moths and bugs and stuff, you probably would take a robe and you'd roll it and you'd tie the belt around it so nothing can get in there. So how was Achan going to know? How did he know the robe was from Babylon? Well, can't you picture him? He unties the belt, holds it up. Boy, that pattern looks familiar, right? Just like you can tell... Native American garments by the patterns they would weave. You can tell different ancient people and who did the, did the weaving. But this robe's from Babylon. Wow. How did he know there were 200 shekels in the bag? Look, you notice four. You don't notice 200. Rain Man did, I guess, right? You're old enough. To, Rain, Rain Man will be... I'll tell you how he did. I mean, in my mind's eye, right? I'm a lot like, here, here's what I think Aiken did. In my mind, here's what he did. Now he has the robe on. He's sitting on the bed. One, two, three, 97, 98, 199, 200 shekels. How did he know the gold bar weighed 50 shekels? Wow. I bet this thing weighs 50 shekels. Interestingly, Do you know what the Hebrew word for glory is? It's the same word as weight. And what Achan's doing, he is giving glory to these objects as he weighs them. Wow, a Babylonian robe, 200 shekels, 50 shekels of gold, yes! Question, what was he ever going to do with this stuff? Achan committed suicide to steal three things he could never use. Where's he ever going to wear the Babylonian robes? Is he going to wear it at the temple next weekend or like tabernacle? You know, that next time they have family dinner, he's going to wear Where'd you get that? Where's he going to spend 200 shekels, right? There's no Costco here. Right. They've just come out of the desert for 40 years. They entered the promise. He can't spend 200 shekels. What's it going to do with a gold bar? In fact, the three items that he gave his life to get are only going to weigh him down. Unless those objects were Aiken's plan B. Just in case this Yahweh thing doesn't work out, I can have a robe I can sell or wear, 200 shekels, I can buy a house somewhere, 50 shekels of gold. I can leave God and his people, and I've got plan B already, already bankrolled, maybe. Why else? He commits suicide to get three things he could never use. And what does he do? Now notice, here's how the process of idolatry works, right? He gives glory to three things in his world. And as he's giving them glory, they are moving 
from gifts in the world to idols in his heart. And now he is valuing them more than God. He is finding his identity in them more than God. He is loving them more than God. And all the words that we used in heart that should be true of us and God, you could say those same words now, they're all being true of Achan and the three things. Now, before you uh, laugh or chuckle or shake your head at Achan, does that story sound familiar? That's my story. I regularly take good gifts that got good things in the world, Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the, with the robe and the silver and the gold. Nothing wrong with that stuff. But when that stuff is given glory or extra weight or promoted to idols or priorities in our heart, then a whole bunch of bad fruit results. And now, if you're valuing those items more than you're valuing God, you'll chase the items and disobey God. If you're finding your identity in the items, you're not finding your identity in God. You'll run after those things, not God. See how that works? That's why I said last week, my problem, and I would suspect most of your problem, is not that we have a normal desire for bad stuff. We have an over-desire for good stuff. That's what we got. We take good things, make them the main thing, make them the God thing, and then it produces all kinds of mess. What's the Bible say? The Bible does not say Money is the root of all evil. Nothing wrong with money. Money's in your world. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Once you promote it from here to here, now you will do anything to get it or keep it. Even disobey, dishonor, trash what God says. Now your idol has been, has been moved to the front burner. God's been moved to the back burner. Whether positive examples like Philippians, negative examples like Achan, the, the process, this is how human beings work, right? This is how it works. Um, let, let me show you one other thing, and then we'll, uh, I'll show you what we're going to do next. Um, there should be a T on that prophet. Oh, it's on the bottom. <laughs> you, some of you probably know that in the Old Testament, there were three offices, right? Prophet, priest, king. Um, and then... Jesus shows up, not sure you ever, depending on where you grew up and went to church, if you went to church, or depending on what you read, you also know that Jesus was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Right? He does all three. So in the Old Testament, three all of you have prophets, you have priests, you have kings. Jesus brings them all together. He's the perfect prophet, the prophet like Moses, who is ultimately greater than Moses. Jesus, the perfect king, right, like King David. Jesus, the perfect priest, right, who, gives, who navigates blessing. Jesus, right, perfect prophet, priest, and king. Well, that begs the question, what do prophets, priests, and kings do? Now, this is another way of taking a run at what we've been talking about. Right? So if you don't like the roots and fruit thing, here's another way to do it. Here's what prophet, a lot of people say, prophets speak for God. Uh, yeah, true prophets, false prophets don't. They speak for something else, right? Here's what all prophets do, whether they're godly prophets or not. Prophets assign meaning to things. Prophets put price tags on things. So prophets go through life and put price tags on, like spending time with your spouse, spending time with your kids, special vacations, having a good resume, doing a great job at work, having a good retirement plan, attending church, 
joining a small group. Well, good and bad things, right? Prophets assign meaning. They put price tags on things. Good prophets and bad prophets. Good prophets assign God's meaning to things. False prophets assign false meaning to things, right? So we live in a world with lots of wrong price tags on stuff. False prophets have done that. We live in a world where God's assigned meaning to things, right? True prophets have done that, right? So all prophets, good or bad, they assign meaning, right? They put price tags on things. What do kings do? Kings organize. Kings order on the basis of the meaning assigned by the prophet. Kings are second order administrators. That's why the kings in the Old Testament had to listen to the prophets. The kings couldn't make their own rules, even though the kings were to be submissive to the prophets. Prophets assign meaning, kings give order, they administrate. And once they organize and administrate, priests show up on the scene. What do priests do? Priests give blessing and cursing, right? Priests navigate, barter, blessing, and cursing. So here's how the process works. Prophets assign meaning, put price tags on things. Then the kings take over. The kings organize, order, and the kings are tyrants, right? I mean, once you assign meaning to something, boy, the king will organize your life to get it. Once the king has kind of organized life, then the priest takes over, you get blessing and curse. I'll give you a simple example. Um, the Winter Olympics, were just, I'm not a Winter Olympics guy. I don't know most sort of sports. I don't like a cold. But, <laughs> but just suppose, here's, um, here's a young kid, junior high school, whatever, and he watches the Winter Olympics and says, well, that's what I want to do. I, I want to be an Olympic skier or snowboard. I, like, I want to flip around, do that. that that's what I want. I want to do that. And you know what? I see the pride and the applause as the national anthem is sung and the flags raised. And wait, I want that. I just don't want to be a skier or snowboard. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to win a gold medal. Now, just a crazy example, right? But just suppose this, this kid assigns meaning. So in, in the other example, if you something good thing in the world, right? being in shape, winning, skiing, whatever, that gets promoted to being the thing now. The prophet is assigned meaning. Now the king will organize life. Isn't that right? Just like any good coach. What does he say? Well, you know what? If you're going to do that, you need to get up early and you need to exercise before you go to school. Kings are tyrants, right? It tells you what your schedule is, tells you who your friends are, tells you what you'll eat, what you won't eat, tells you what you can do on the weekend, what you do during the week. Tells you how you spend your time. What no. kings are tyrants. As soon as you set your, as soon as the prophet assigns meaning, ultimate meaning to go in the Olympics, winning that gold medal, the king takes over and the king gives order, order, order. And that kid now, if he's committed, will give all of the, his life to that. And just suppose now this doesn't happen often, but just suppose it doesn't have to be the Olympics. Be like major league baseball, football, whatever. Now, once the king takes over. Then the priest gives blessing and cursing. What are some of the blessings? Suppose the kid has some talent. So suppose the kid, he's, he's winning snowboard events, right? So to Poconos, that's too little for him, right? He's going, to, he's going out west. He's going to New England. He's skiing all these tournaments. He's winning juniors. He's winning, I don't know what you win. He's winning senior events. He's making it. He makes the Olympic team. He goes and wins a gold. That's blessing, 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 right? 
I mean, the priest is blessing, blessing based on the king's order of what he's done, based on the meaning assigned by the prophet. But has any cursing come along the way? Yeah, you bet. Injuries? Lack of relationship? If he's older, maybe trashed relationships? Trash marriage? Steroids? Drugs? Cutting corners? Blessings and cursing? See how that goes? Blessings and cursings? Um, that's the same process. And here's, here's why it always works. Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, king, we are in his image. We are prophets, priests, and kings. We assign meaning to things. I know you have. I have. And once you assign meaning, your kingly function takes over and you organize your life to get what your prophet has assigned meaning to. And I know that right now you're receiving blessing from that and cursing from that. They both come, right? That's why it's so hard when uh, people go to counseling to stay through the whole process. Here's why. When someone goes to counseling, what do they really want? They want the cursing to stop. Do they want the blessing to stop? Heck no. So inevitably, most counselees will quit too early. They'll quit when the pain is lessened, but they won't wait until the idol or the meaning has been changed. And so if they quit too early, it'll just recapitulate and grow into something in the future. I remember uh, I read a long time ago, and every once in a while I'm thinking of it now. Somebody wrote and said, uh, ultimately and factually, you can't break God's law. You can disobey God's law and get broken by it, but you don't break it. You don't break this process, right? I mean, you don't break the root, fruit, world thing. You prove it. We prove God's law. We prove this dynamic. We don't deny it.